feel the weight of those lyrics? From the initial moment I heard the words of that song, it became one which I knew that I would never forget years ago, back in the 90s when it first came out. Not just because the melody was pleasing to my ears or because the style of music perked my interest, not because the artist who sings it professes to be a Christian, but what makes this song so significant and what gripped my attention almost immediately was the non-negotiable truth and immovable integrity of the declarations contained in that song. The message behind the words described the way that I, I want to live my life, not that I always do it, but to live my life as a man, as a husband, as a pastor, and as a committed disciple of Christ. Contained in the well-turned phrases of this song is an apt description of the fabric of what makes a Christian man or a Christian woman credible, believable, and enviable to the world around us, believers and unbelievers alike. The words of this song, in effect, constitute the manifesto of a person of integrity. And integrity, we must admit, is a virtue which has all but disappeared from the social, moral, political, and yes, even the spiritual landscape of this century. Unfortunately, those who live by the code represented by the lyrics here we just heard are in short supply. And as Christian people who claim to believe in the concept of absolute truth, we ought to be troubled by the lack of moral integrity exhibited on every front. In contemplating what to speak about today, this issue of integrity kept coming up in my mind. And although I've addressed this topic on various occasions, the question nevertheless needs to be stated and restated. And here it is. Do we really believe what we say we believe? In other words, do our convictions really define who we are? Do you have strong, unalterable convictions? Are you one who moves the boundaries at certain costs? Is there a line that you refuse to cross? And if there is, where is it? Where have you drawn that line? And what is the thing that will cause you to change where you have drawn it? That's the crucial question that we all must grapple with. Integrity, someone has said, is not acquired in the event of a crisis. It's only exhibited. If there is a need for anything in our world today, it's for men and women of biblical integrity. If the body of Christ cannot supply them, then who else can? There was a time when the title man or woman of God was considered a compliment. Now... That phrase often is greeted with cynicism and skepticism. In the dated but well-known groundbreaking book, The Day America Told the Truth, when authors James Patterson and Peter Kim many years ago asked people in a national survey, one of the greatest national surveys ever taken, to rank professions for honesty and integrity, they placed TV evangelists near the bottom of 73 occupations right between prostitutes and organized crime bosses. Now to be sure, in the early church, Christians were hated. No question about it. There's historical record of that fact. They were persecuted, burned at the stake. Yet even though they were despised, they nevertheless had the reputation in the community as being people of integrity. 
In a letter to Emperor Trajan in 112 AD, Pliny, proprietor of Bithynia and Pontus, paid high tribute to the moral integrity of Christians by writing of their, quote, unwillingness to commit theft or adultery, to falsify their word, or to repudiate a trust, unquote. That is a stark contrast to what the news outlets are writing concerning the moral integrity of Christians today, isn't it? What does integrity look like? I read one author who described it in tongue-in-cheek fashion. Integrity can be a slippery word to define, he says, like the story of some theologians who were trying to come up with an accurate description of the word, so they invited a philosopher into the room. Tell us, they said, what is integrity? The philosopher pondered the question and said, integrity, he finally intoned, is what you're like when nobody's around. The panel thanked him and then ushered in a businessman and asked for his definition. In my world, the businessman said, integrity means a person is as good as his word. After thanking him, the panel invited a lawyer to join them. What is integrity, they asked the lawyer. And the attorney's eyes cautiously scanned around the room, crept over to the door, opened it, looked outside to make sure nobody was listening, bolted it shut, closed the windows, pulled down the shades, and tell me, he finally whispered, what do you want it to mean? Now, for you lawyers up there, this guy that wrote this tongue-in-cheek was a lawyer himself, so he spoke in front of himself. But Psalm 15 describes the person of integrity. If you want to look at Psalm 15, David writes these words, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. And then he outlines some of the things that characterize a person of integrity. He speaks truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to a neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, who honors those who fear the Lord, and who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Doesn't put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things, David says, will never be shaken. Webster's Dictionary defines integrity as soundness, incorruptibility, completeness, and undividedness in the person's soul. The Hebrew word for integrity paints the portrait of something that, or someone that is whole and complete and unimpaired. Its brushstrokes include things like personal reliability, political, moral, and financial accountability, spiritual authenticity, and the absence of hypocrisy. Here's one man's simple definition of integrity. Ted Engstrom said, integrity is doing what you said you'd do. Integrity is kind of like fine crystal. Every little crack shows up. And we need more men and women of godly integrity who exhibit moral and ethical excellence regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. We need more people like Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 6 if you're not already there. We'll unpack a little bit of it today. I'm not going to finish this whole thing today, but we'll continue on next time. But interestingly, the word integrity is never mentioned in the book of Daniel. And yet, as someone has well said, integrity fits where integrity is found. Tap the character of Daniel anywhere and it rings 
of moral integrity, especially when you come to this chapter, chapter 6. I'm convinced that there are a host of things we can glean from Daniel's life in concerning integrity. He, like all of us, lived in a godless, pagan nation, and yet he remained firm and unchanged as a man of God. He was sound. He was unimpaired. The world and the church desperately need more men and women like Daniel. Men and women of God who are sound, people of God, my friends, must be a people of integrity. There are some key principles in this chapter of Daniel which characterize people of integrity. I want to unpack a few of them for you this morning and we'll continue like I said next time. First of all, a person of spiritual integrity or people who of spiritual integrity will enjoy God's favor. They will enjoy God's favor. Look at the first three verses. We'll work down through this a little bit. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. They'd be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. So here's Daniel appointed by the king, a pagan king, to be a commissioner over the entire kingdom. That these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. The king's trusted Daniel, even with his, his whole economic system. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps. He rose to the leader, the position of leader over leaders. Why? Because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Notice the terms here. Excellent or extraordinary. You know what it means? It means that which is abundant and more than enough. Daniel's extraordinary spirit refers here to not only the grace that God has put on his life, the favor, but also his attitude. He had a great attitude. Even in the midst of a very trying circumstance, he had the right attitude. For instance, Daniel chapter 1, just turn back there. Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. So Daniel is uh, deported under King Nebuchadnezzar, to Babylon as a teenager. He got new names assigned to him and his friends in verse 7 and in verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Well, there was a line that he drew early on in his, in his life as a teenager. He was not going to violate the law in this food issue. And so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Notice the attitude there. It wasn't a high-handed, I'm not going to do this. He sought permission. And now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander and the officials. Skip down to verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God put his hand on Daniel because of his extraordinary spirit. Daniel drew his line of resistance, first of all, by training his appetite. Now skip over to Daniel chapter 5, verse 10. Fast forward many, many years in Daniel's life after being in this kingdom and establishing himself. King Belshazzar, 
very nasty guy, got drunk, had a big party, and something happened here in this party. And this hand appeared writing on the wall, and everybody, it says even the king's knees started knocking together. That's how fearful he was. So they were trying to figure out who it was. They sent to what, what the message was, and they sent for all of these officials to read the inscription and give its interpretation, but nobody could do it. And then the queen entered the banquet hall in verse 10 because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because, note it, an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight and interpretation of dreams and explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned and he will declare the interpretation. Look at verse uh, chapter 2 now. Just back up a bit again. Look at verse 27. This is a different king earlier. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for this mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. So here's Daniel, extraordinary spirit, the favor of God. He's being used to influence kings all through this kingdom and he's taking no glory to himself. He's humble. A man of integrity will find favor with God, but also with the majority of people around him. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, remember the writer of Proverbs are writing generalized axioms and principles. It doesn't happen in every case. Obviously, if that was the case, Jesus never would have been crucified, right? So don't take that too woodenly. But generally speaking, if you are a person of integrity, the people around you will respect that. Amen? Found that to be true? Even unbelievers. Many Christians think... Christians think the whole world is out to get them just because they're Christians. That's simply not true. If you are a godly man or a woman living according to God's word, most people, even though they don't agree with you, will respect you. Because integrity builds trust. If, however, you're constantly whining and complaining and always jumping on your soapbox... No one's going to watch you around. The problem today is that Christians have the reputation of being troublemakers. That's not what Jesus advocated. He taught his followers to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God. Integrity not only builds trust and has a high influence value on people, but people respond much quicker to a genuine lifestyle that loves them to life than they do with a thick Bible that bludgeons them to death. Now, sometimes the Bible, you need to use the Bible to do the hard thing. But you do it in love, because it is love. But you don't bludgeon people with it. They might feel like you are, but that doesn't necessarily mean you are. Will Rogers put it in concise terms. He said, people's minds are changed through observation and not argument. In other words, they want to see it in your life. That pretty much summarizes the secret of Daniel's success here and the influence in the midst of a political administration that did not share his spiritual belief system. When you are a man or woman of biblical integrity, you will be used by God and enjoy the preference of a majority of the people around you. And with that preference, however, comes great responsibility and with great difficulty. Make no mistake about it. If you're a person of conviction, your integrity will be tested. It will generally be tested in two areas, in areas of difficulty and adversity and in areas of prosperity when everything's going well and people are speaking well of you. And Daniel was tested in both of those areas. But the most difficult test, what do you think the most difficult test is? The most difficult of those two is having prosperity in it. When everything's going right, when everyone's speaking well of you, when everything's going your way. Because as someone observes, when adversity strikes, things get very simple, don't they? Survival is the goal. But when prosperity comes, watch out, things get complicated. All kinds of subtle temptations arrive, pleading for satisfaction. It is then that one's integrity is really put to the test. That's where Daniel was in verse 3. He had this extraordinary spirit. The king planned to put him over the entire kingdom. Everything was going his way. And although integrity gains approval with most people, some of your peers will hate you simply because your faithfulness is an affront to their lack of it. Verses 4 and 5. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel. He's too cool. He's too good. He's too much of a man of integrity. They're not going to find anything against him unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. In other words, we're not going to catch him in sin. We're going to have to make a bogus law so that he violates the king's law because he'll follow his God before he'll follow anything else. Right in your margin, ancient media. Here, Old Testament tabloid, fake news, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever you want to put on there. Next to verse 4, these accusers searched every corner of Daniel's life for something to expose, but Daniel had no skeletons in his closet. Someone once said, image 
is what people think we are. Integrity is what we really are. So, when you post things on your Facebook page, are you being honest? Or are you trying to create an image to make people think certain things about you? But maybe your family knows something different behind the scenes, or, or maybe your friends do, or maybe you do. Daniel was the real thing. They couldn't even drum up any fake news on the guy. And that's the second thing. A person of spiritual integrity will exemplify moral purity. Verses 4 through 9. I just read 4 and 5. Um, verse 6. The commissioners and the satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as followers of King Darius. Live forever, they're appealing to the king now. Hey, make a law. We, you're a great guy. We don't think anybody should be worshiping anybody else or praying to anybody else. So make a law that says for the next 30 days that anybody that prays to anybody else is a criminal. You think that kind of touched the king right where he needed to be touched? In his pride? See, Daniel was above reproach. Notice that his accusers couldn't find anything corrupt in regard to his job or his lifestyle. He had moral, ethical, and spiritual purity, and his peers couldn't stand it. He was so squeaky clean. That's not to say that he was perfect, because you and I both know that Daniel was not perfect. No one is. But he was consistent. He was consistent. He practiced what he preached. He exhibited an amazing congruence between two things, his life and his lip. His walk and his talk, his beliefs and his behavior. And the big question is, do we? Do you? Do I? What would your friends say? What would your employer say? Hey, what would your family say? I got this cartoon out of a leadership magazine. I'll read it to you. It says, Dear Grandma, thank you for the tape recorder you sent for Christmas. I have already made quite a bit of money selling dad tapes on, I've made around the house on Sunday mornings. I'm hoping to buy, a, I'm saving up to buy a video camera. Thanks again. Love, Eldon. What would be exposed if someone ran around recording what went on in your house on Sunday morning before church or during the week? You see, because in an age of advanced technology where people are flashing cell phone video cameras at anyone, anywhere, and at any time, and we all possess the ability to immediately post live video feeds for all the world to see, you never know who is recording your actions or your words, do you? How much more critical do you think it is to be a man or woman of integrity? Yet no one is that perfect, are they? As disturbing as that is, that at any time someone could point a phone at you and record, or even when you're not even looking, record what you're saying or what you're doing. As disturbing as that is, it also is a good thing because it brings front and center our need of a savior that much closer to home doesn't it there's absolutely no reason in the world for these people to be hounding Daniel except that he was above the board oh and by the way that's the only reason in the world that people ought to be despising and persecuting us as Christians because we are a living example of God's truth not for any other reason 
That's why the Jews hated Jesus. That's why the Romans killed the apostles. That should be the only reason that people want to trouble you or trouble me. But the question is, is it? These leaders were green with envy because Daniel had found favor with the king. And the fact that he was a foreigner irritated them even more. And so they plotted to get rid of him, but they couldn't find anything to accuse him of. In fact, they had to devise, as I said, a bogus law that they knew he would have to break in order to remain faithful to his God. Daniel's spiritual convictions were so consistent that they could be used against him. Did you hear that? Are yours? Friends, Christian integrity consists in knowing where to draw the line and determining never under any circumstances to cross that line. Is our faithfulness to our biblical convictions so solid and so well known that someone, anyone, could count on it? Do the people with whom you come in contact with every single day even realize that you're a Christian? Can they count on you to consistently act like one or me? Again, verse 8, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, the king signed the document that is the injunction. Verse 6 says, they came by agreement, these commissioners and satraps, these leaders. And notice they didn't consult Daniel because he was one of them. They had the secret meeting and conveniently left Daniel out of it. In fact, verse 2 indicates that he was first among these leaders, so he was the leader over them. It was a coup. The term actually refers to the fact that they ran together tumultuously. That's what came by agreement means. It means they came with earnestness and excitement to try to catch Daniel in something. And what they do in verse 7? Well, they made Darius God for 30 days. And how did they do that? Because they appealed to his vanity. The interplay here in this text between vice and virtue is an amazing thing to, in, to meditate on. It's extremely interesting here. They use the consistency of Daniel's spiritual integrity and coupled it with the audacity of Darius's personal vanity to weave a noose by which both of them would be hanged. And sure enough, it paid off. Or so it seemed. There's more to the story. Darius may have been played the fool, but Daniel wasn't fooling around. So the third thing that we see here in this text is that a people of spiritual integrity will exhibit faithful perseverance. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he knew it. He entered his house, now in his roof chamber, had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he committed, continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. 
Then the men came by agreement, found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Three things will emerge here about Daniel, and also the same three things will emerge about a person of integrity. Number one, a person of integrity is confident in the power of their faith. People of integrity are confident in the power of their faith. This is confidence here. Now when Daniel knew that that document was signed, he was, knew full well that if he violated it, he was going to be arrested, that his leadership position wasn't going to buy him any favors. He continued to do what it says at the end of verse 10, as he had been doing previously. Notice Daniel's action. It's neither conceited nor cowardly. He doesn't deliberately inflame the authorities by claiming his rights to public prayer. He didn't throw open the windows making a spectacle of himself. The text says that they were already opened if you read it. When overzealous Christians take this passage out of context and they use it as their primary biblical support for militant civil disobedience, it kind of bugs me. Yes, there is surely a time for civil disobedience. No question about it. Acts chapter 5 verse 29 clearly indicates that sometimes we must obey all the time. We must obey God rather than men and sometimes that results in civil disobedience. But... Daniel's behavior here is very instructive to us. He simply maintained the pattern of living out his convictions as he always had. Without fanfare, without attracting undue attention to himself. And that brings out the second thing about a person that exhibits faithful perseverance. People of integrity have consistent pattern of living out their faith a consistent pattern of living out their faith. Verse 10, the second part of it, as he had been doing previously. And so these men were able to come and find him praying right where they knew he would be. Daniel was simply doing what he did every day of his life. He wasn't militant. He didn't start an aggressive campaign to bring back public prayer. He simply prayed. People seem to forget that last phrase there in verse 10, as he had been doing previously. Friends, we don't need to publicly fight to bring prayer back into the public square. We need to commit ourselves to be bringing prayer back into our personal lives, into our personal homes, into our personal churches. That is the greater need of our day. A man or woman of biblical integrity is not marked by what he constantly fights for, but by what he constantly lives for. The plain truth is that society doesn't believe in the importance of prayer because Christians don't believe in it. Now, I know, I'm just making a blanket statement. I know there are people in this room, and myself included, that believe in the power of prayer. But generally speaking, where's the country going, my friends, right? Does that society out there believe that we believe in the power of prayer? Here's the thought. 
Could people set their watch by the pattern of prayer that you and I have developed over time? By observing us? Now, I'm not talking about legalism. Ritualistic practice with no meaning. I'm talking about consistency. We need to become people of spiritual integrity and we can start with bringing back the integrity of our personal prayer life as Daniel did. But everyone knew that Daniel prayed every day. He had a long observable history of putting it into practice. He was probably in his, you know how old Daniel was here? Take a guess. Probably in his mid-80s. It was common knowledge among his peers after all of this time that he was in captivity, that he was a man of prayer who constantly served his Lord. As a matter of fact, verse 16 here and verse 20. Note the term constantly here. In verse 16, then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve, may your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. May he deliver you. Verse 20. When he had come near the den to Daniel afterwards, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Obviously he had. person of integrity not only is confident in the power of his faith, Consistent in the pattern of living out his faith. But the third thing here is he has confirmed priorities in his practice of faith. Confirmed priorities in his practice of faith. That's called conviction. Conviction. Daniel's priority was to do what God wanted regardless of what everyone else wanted. Correct? And when it came to his faith, he wasn't conceited, he wasn't cowardly, he was simply confident, consistent, and convinced. His beliefs were more than strong preferences, they were deep-seated convictions, and his convictions were his priority. Now, this is where we get a little bit personal and practical. Have you ever thought about which of your beliefs, because I've spent some time here thinking about my own. Have you ever thought about which of your beliefs could be classified as convictions? And which ones are preferences? I think most of us would be surprised to find that we probably hold very, very few convictions. Why do I say that? I'm about to tell you. Did you know that in this country, if you are on trial for violating a law, and your reasoning is that by keeping that particular law, you would be forced to violate your religious belief that you are required to prove that that belief is a valid belief? That if you claim it's, your, it's a violation of your religious conviction to do something that the government has said to do, you have to prove that that belief is valid. And they have set up ways to prove it. In other words, the courts want to know, is it really a belief you hold to by conviction or are you just blowing smoke? In 1972, and these laws are still there, the Supreme Court came down with a test as to whether your belief could be classified as a true conviction or not. Jonah Yoder, a man, an Amish man from Wisconsin, told the state, 
I will not send my children to your schools anymore. The state said, you can't do that. You have to send them. Yoder said, I don't think you heard me. I am not going to send my children to your schools anymore. They said, well, Mr. Yoder, if you don't send your children to our schools, we will sue you. Do you want us to sue you? No. Then send your children to school. Yoder said, I don't think you heard me. I am not going to send my children to your local schools. The state said, if we sue you and we win, you could go to jail. He said, I don't want to go to jail. Then send your kids to school. I don't think you heard me. I'm not going to send my kids to your schools. If you don't do it and we win the court case, we'll have to put you in jail. And then you might lose your, ch your children. I wouldn't like any of that. Put your kids in school. Yoda said, I don't think you understand. <laughs> My religious beliefs forbid that I do that. I'm not putting my kids in your school. So they took him to court. He lost. They came around and said, okay, you had your day in court. Send your kids to school. He said, I'm not sending my kids to your school. It doesn't matter to me whether a court says I'm right or wrong. They're not going to your school. Yoda repealed. He lost. Send your kids to school. I'm not going to do it, he said. The argument went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they said, you don't have to send your kids to school. The First Amendment protects you. And they laid down the test to determine which of a person's beliefs are to be protected and which are not. The first thing they said they did was to determine that every, quote, every single religious belief a person has is one of two types. Number one, it's either a conviction, or number two, it's a preference. That's it. The court said, so you're not confused. Let us define the two for you. Bear in mind that in the United States, only convictions are protected by the Constitution, not preferences. Here's a preference. A preference is a very strong belief. You hold it with great intensity. You hold it with great strength. This is how strong it can be held. It can be held so strong that you can go into full-time service in the name of that belief. This is the court. Put this down. It can be so strong that you give all your wealth to it. It can be a belief of such fiber that you can be energetic and proselytizing people toward it. And you can be so convinced of it that you can even want to teach it to your children. However, here is what makes a belief a preference. It may be a very strong belief. It may fit all those criteria I just mentioned. But it is a belief that you will change. You prefer it. But under some circumstance, you will change your belief. That's what makes it a preference versus a conviction. The courts also studied the circumstances that might cause a person to change their beliefs and came up with these. Peer pressure. G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of a people who don't believe in anything. A minister studied the Bible. He says to himself, here's something I know I must do. He resolves in his heart that I am going to do it. Then he goes out to his friends, other ministers and, and people in his congregation. He tells everybody, this is what I'm going to do. Other ministers say, hold on just a minute. You may be right. We don't say that you're wrong. But couldn't you tone it down just a bit? Couldn't you fix it so that we could cooperate with you? You have to be more tolerant. 
Could you come around just a little bit so that it's not so offensive to us and maybe you could still get done what you wanted to do? The minister says, this is what I believe. And then little by little, he bends. And he proves that what he first said was a conviction ended up being a preference. He preferred it. He wanted to do it. He resolved to do it, but he changed. The court said that if you can change that belief, that belief or faith is only a preference because you bent due to peer pressure. There's another thing that you can bend to, one of the strongest ones, that's family pressure. Or lawsuits and litigation. You don't want to go to court, so I'm going to change my belief. Or jail. This is a tough one. Isolation, brutal men out to break you. Would you go to jail for a matter of your faith? No one's going to understand in that jail why you've gone. No one's going to appreciate that you've gone. Would going to jail cause you to change your beliefs? If it would, then the courts have said that your belief is not a conviction. It's a preference. Okay, so maybe you would go to jail. But would you watch your wife and your children go to jail for your beliefs? Oh, now we're getting to it. Would that cause you to change? The court's test is pretty meaningful, isn't it? The bottom line is, what does your belief mean to you? Is it a conviction? Or is it just a preference? Well, it's not bad to have preferences. But don't go around telling people you have a conviction in a certain area if it doesn't meet the test. Because God's tests are even higher than the courts, remember? The last thing the court said that I suppose is that I suppose a person would have to be willing to die for his belief in order for it to be classified as a conviction. In other words, a conviction is a belief that you will not change. What creates a conviction? The court said that it's something that a man believes his God absolutely requires of him and to not do it would be a sin. And it's not a matter of resolve. It's not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of whether God requires it and you would not change your belief under any circumstances just listed. Now let me ask you a question again. As I ask myself, how many of our personal beliefs would we be able to list as convictions according to the court's definition? Would that list be long or would it be short? The courts also said that a conviction is something that you purpose, not accidentally come across. It's something that you have purposed to do. It's part of the fabric of your belief system. It's something that you can show that you consistently live by. The courts have realized that convictions, true convictions, will always show up in a person's lifestyle at some point. If we say that we have a conviction about something, then we ought to be able to prove it by our lives. Otherwise, it is merely a preference. That was the case in Daniel's life, wasn't it? It was a conviction. And in the lives of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, 
and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 when they went to the fiery furnace. I don't care if God delivers us from this furnace or not, they said. We're not going to follow your rule. Because God will deliver us one way or the other. Their convictions were non-negotiable. A man or woman of God must be a man or woman of spiritual integrity. And a man or woman of spiritual integrity will be a man or woman of convictions in all the places that God requires. Amen? I don't know what those are for you. You have to kind of mine that from the scriptures for your life. But there are certain ones that he wants us to abide by. But we all fall short, right? There's an old BC comic strip that I found. I love BC because it really puts it right there. Two guys sitting there. Uh, Would you commit a crime for a hundred clams? Absolutely not. A thousand? Never. About 10,000 clams. Sir, you offend my sense of virtue. Okay, how about 10 million? What kind of crime? Everybody has a line, right? It's convicting, isn't it? Now, to be sure, even the courts recognize that no one's perfect. I'm not, you're not. And Daniel surely wasn't either. Don't misread what this message is saying. Don't misread what I'm trying to say here. You don't have to be perfect to have your Christianity taken seriously. In fact, you can't be perfect. You do, however, have to be honest. That's the bottom line of it all, isn't it? You have to be honest. Be honest about the fact that you and I fall far, far short of living out what we claim to believe. I do, you do, Daniel did. We don't have any evidence against Daniel because it wasn't written down, but I'm sure there was because he's a human being and the scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. We need a savior. Be honest about the fact that you and I fall very far short of living out what we claim to believe. We need help. We need Jesus. The only one who is perfect. When Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was burned at the stake in 155 AD, he had been a Christian for 86 years, about Daniel's age, actually. Before they lit the fire, they called on him to deny Christ. His response is well known and much revered. Polycarp said this, he said, 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? See, he accepted those flames as God's will for his life. That's the kind of integrity we need today. The kind that is confident and consistent and convinced that God is in control No matter what. I believe the church in this country needs people of that kind of integrity. But beware. Because with that kind of commitment, there's going to be opposition. And great persecution. And that's what we're going to see next time when we pick it up. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord.
for the example of Daniel. Sometimes we read these examples in Scripture of people that don't bend or, or bow or burn. <laughs> because they are so committed to you. Help us to be that kind of people. I know we fall far short. I fall far short of that, Lord. But that's why we need you. That's why we need Jesus. Let us rest upon him. Take his yoke upon us. Find rest for our souls. In the process of walking and following hard after him, Lord, when we know we fail, help us to get up, brush ourselves off by the power of your Holy Spirit and continue on. And help us, Lord God, not to put ourselves up on a pedestal and claim things about our lives that we really know deep down in our hearts are not true. Help us to be true. Without hypocrisy. And we know, Lord God, as we enter into your throne room to find mercy in these cases, that you always run to us, embrace us, throw your arms around us, and forgive us if we're in Christ. That there is nothing that can separate us from your love except when we dig in our heels and we resist the brokenness that you desire us to have. So Father, I pray that wherever these applications fit in our lives today for each of us individually and for us as a church corporately, we take heed that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. For I ask it in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.